Hello, hello. Whoa. Now you can hear me. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome to Drive, even though we've been here for almost an hour already. Um, whoa. Success and failure. All right. So, uh, hey, I want to talk about something cool. Tonight, we had three students uh, on stage as we did worship for the first time. So, I think that's awesome. Make them feel appreciated. Uh, Lily, Corinne, Luke, I'm so thankful for all three of you uh, being willing and putting in the time and putting in the time to get here early and practice and uh, just use your talents for God. That's super, super cool. So we're starting a new series, and we are going to be going through the book of James, and our series is called The Book of James, all right? We came up with a really, well, that says drive. The Book of James. Let's try it again. The Book of James. Hey! Look at us. Man, we are really just... Knocking it out of the park tonight. But, you know, as we go through the book of James, the James is a really great book for someone maybe you haven't read a lot of the Bible and you're like, what should I read? James is awesome because it's practical. It's stuff that can help you in life right now. So we're going to go through the book of James. It's only five chapters long. We're going to go through all of it. It might sound like a lot. We're not going through all of it tonight. We're only going through like 10, 15 verses tonight. But over the next few weeks, myself and Joe, uh, we've got a couple different speakers. We've got a first-time speaker coming uh, next month. His name is Dan Cardi. He goes to our church. He's going to be speaking to us as well. We're going to be going through the book of James. What I like about James is James is very blunt and right to the point. Maybe you have a friend in your life that's like that, and they can be irritating when they are blunt and right to the point, but sometimes you appreciate that, right? Maybe you have a, a new outfit, or you're getting ready to go to homecoming or something like that, and you're not sure how you look, and so you ask all your friends, like, oh, you look great, you look great, but you're not so sure, so you ask that friend that's blunt and is going to tell you exactly how it is. That's good to have a person like that in your life, and James is like that. So he's going to walk us through some really incredible, valuable life lessons, and I think if we have a, a lesson for tonight's message, it's making it through Difficult times. How do we make it through difficult times? How many of you guys have ever been in a difficult situation? I'm sure every hand should probably go up. And, you know, different levels of difficult. Some of us have really, really struggled in life. Some of us have had a pretty easy life. And, like, the difficult thing for you is, like, your parents got a flat tire on the way home from church one week or something like that. But maybe you've really struggled with things. Maybe you're going through a really difficult time right now. Maybe you've had to deal with some things that actually left you questioning if God loves you at all or if God is even real at all because that's how tough life has gotten. The truth is difficult things happen and they're a part of everyone's life. We all have them at some point or another. Maybe you've been through some stuff recently. Maybe it's coming. Maybe you're coming out of that season. I hope uh, that everyone's having a good night at least tonight. I don't know what everyone's tough things are. Uh, I can think of my own life, and I can think of some struggles that I've dealt with. And some of my struggles are pretty common. Uh, some of mine are very unique to myself. For you guys, maybe it's school. Uh, maybe school is just the worst. Like, you don't like to go. Uh, maybe just going to school in itself is your struggle. Waking up in the morning. Maybe you struggle in math. Maybe it's a certain class. Maybe you don't get along with people at your school. Maybe it's a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Maybe you've got a bully, you know. Um, but maybe, maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's, you've got a loved one like grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. They're sick, and they're not getting better. And that's a difficult time in life. You know, whatever your tough thing is, oftentimes it can leave you wondering, why is this happening? Why is it happening to me? And what does this mean for my life? And that's actually the first thing James covers in his book is difficult times and how we get through them. So we're going to look at the first, I think we're going to get through 18 verses tonight in the book of James. Uh, we're going to see four things that James points out through our difficult times in life. So if you brought a Bible, you can go ahead and follow. If you didn't have a Bible, we've got the, the graphics on the screen so you can follow along. Or if you're like me and you have the Bible on your phone, you can do it that way. But we're going to start right in verse 1. It says, we're just going to read the first verse. It says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's verse 1. Now, why would I stop there? That means nothing, right? It's just like, hey, it's James, what's up? What can we get from that? Well, actually, we can get something pretty important from that. See, here's the thing. It's no surprise that the book of James was written by a guy named James, James right? So he starts by saying, hey, this is James, okay? But I want to talk about who James is, okay? Because the Bible's got a few different Jameses. There's uh, James, who's the brother of John. There is James, uh, two, two of the disciples. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. There is the James who is the father of Judas, not that Judas, a different Judas. So there's different Jameses. So which James is writing to us here? And I think that matters. Uh, most people believe that the James who wrote this letter was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. They had the same uh, mom, I believe. So Jesus' brother, James, is writing this. Why is that important? What does that matter? How many of you guys have brothers or sisters? Any? Just about everybody, all right? So we've all got brothers, sisters, all right? Uh, it's not always the easiest thing in the world. Um, I am the youngest of three. I've got an older sister, older brother. Growing up in my home, my sister could do no wrong. My brother could do everything wrong, and I was kind of a mix in between. But my sister was treated like the golden child. I don't know why. In fact, she never got punished for anything. She never got in trouble. Like, I would leave, like, a bowl of cereal out, and I'd get grounded for a week. My sister legit drove her car through the garage door once, and my dad said, that's okay, sweetie. I know that really upset you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, she didn't even get in trouble. My dad just felt bad for her. So, like, maybe you've got a brother or sister, and, like, they're a better athlete than you, right? Or they're just smarter than you. Or they're, 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 they've got a better personality, and people just kind of gravitate to them more. Now imagine that your brother or sister wasn't just good at something. Imagine they were perfect, and they never sinned. Imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother. That would be tough. Because maybe you mess up and your parents are like, Jesus would never do that. We're like, yeah, he does, does, never does anything wrong. You know, like they might grow to resent him. In fact, the Bible tells us that as Jesus became an adult and started his ministry, his brothers and sisters rejected him. There's a verse that says they, they didn't believe he was who he said he was. They thought he was crazy. So somewhere along the line, this James changed his mind and started to, to believe that his half-brother Jesus was the son of God. And he believes in him because it says a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James at some point believes that Jesus is God and he's writing about Jesus through this book. And what I think is cool is we see in one sentence that James is displaying something called humility. And here's why we see these saying humility. He doesn't mention who his brother is. Because man, if I was Jesus' brother, I would let everybody know. Like if I had a famous relative in my family, you'd all know it. I would, I would tag him in every Instagram post that I'm in. I would, I would share them everywhere. I would say, hey, my name is Jordan, brother of Justin Bieber or whoever, you know, whatever, like stuff like that, although he kills cats apparently based off our game. So, but if I had a famous brother or sister, I'd use that. Like, I'm, I'm just going to be honest, especially if they were rich, right? But James has Jesus as his brother, and he doesn't say James, the brother of Jesus. He says James, a servant of God. So right off the bat, we see that he has humility. And the first thing, when you're going through hard times, if you want to get through it, is your spirit has to be in the right place. We're going to learn a lot of practical wisdom from James. In fact, we almost called the series Practical Christianity, but thought the book of James just sounded way more clever. So uh, we stayed with that one. And, and so how we approach life 
and how God want, and how God wants us to approach life and how sometimes we butt heads there and, and don't really do what God wants us to do. But I think the first thing James teaches us is the attitude we need to have. And it's an attitude of humility. Now, what is humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you will dog yourself. Some of you will insult yourself. Some of you call yourself ugly, stupid, dumb, whatever. That's not humility. That's just trashing yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less, thinking of others above you, thinking of God first. That's what humility is. So we see that Jesus gave a really perfect example of humility in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. I love that we highlighted um, he gave up his divine privileges. He gave them up. Divine privileges means that being God gives you privileges. The fact that Jesus is God, he had privilege to do whatever he wanted. He gave those things up so he could come here and live a servant's life for us. Jesus could have come to earth with a list of demands. He could have come with, with a list of things that we have to do with an attitude of superiority with an attitude that I am above you, I am better than you, but instead he gave up his rights and he chose to humbly walk among people and he even died for us. If you want to make it through tough times, humility has to be an attitude you approach it in. Otherwise, instead of being able to learn something through what you're going through, we're going to spend the whole time being arrogant about it, saying this shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. I'm better than this. We have to approach tough times with humility. Let's go back to the verses. Verse 2 through 4 says this. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that line, like so many people, it gives me pause when I read it. Count it all joy. When I face trials, I need to find joy in that. And that seems... Sort of insane, right? Hey, when life gets hard, find joy in that. That doesn't make any sense to us. What if you went to someone today? Let me think of a good example. Okay, I got a perfect example, okay? What if you went to someone today, and they're going through a very difficult time, and, and you see them, and they're crying, and you find out, like, grandma died, or, like, their boyfriend broke up with them, and you just walk to them and be like, yes! And it's like, well, give them a high five. Like, you get in a fight, right? Like... <laughs> You're losing a friend. That's not what he's saying by count it all joy. Like, we shouldn't celebrate the bad things that are happening. If that person did that to you, you'd think they were nuts. You'd think they were mean. You'd think they were, like, they hated you. So why is James telling us to count it all joy through trials? Why is he telling us that? Because it's a mindset. It doesn't have to be an outward expression of joy. You know, if, if, if your parents lose their job tomorrow, you shouldn't be like, that's the best news that's ever happened. You're going to be sad. You're going to be upset. But how do we find joy? It's a mindset. It's because we know that with every difficult thing that happens in our life, it's an opportunity for us to grow. Those things can make us stronger, but only if we approach them with the right mindset. You have to understand that no matter how difficult the thing is that you're going through, you can get through it. And so the next thing is your mind has to be in the right place. So our attitude, you know, we have, to, we have to have that attitude of humility, but also our mind. When you know you have opportunity, it changes everything, all right? Opportunity changes our willingness to go through things. If I were to take, I see Brandon right there, all right? If I were to take Brandon and say, hey, Brandon, 
uh, out in the courtyard, the sewer's all backed up. It's about 12 inches high of sewer water and poop and crap. Uh, I need you to walk through it, and I actually need you to dive under and swim through it. All right? Brandon would be like, no, why would I ever do that? But if I told Brandon, I need you to do that, and if you do, I will give you $100,000. All of a sudden, Brandon's going to be like, do I have to change my clothes? Like, he does, you just dive in, right, for $100,000 because Brandon would see the opportunity that this horrible situation presented. Yeah, nobody wants to swim through the crap, but if there's something good that can come through it, it gives us a reason to keep swimming through the crap. And some of you guys are here for the very first time, you're like, wow, that pastor says crap a lot. All right, I promise I don't all that often. But when we have opportunity, it changes everything about the difficulty. It changes how we view it. It changes how we view how we got there, where we're at in the middle of it. It changes our perception of all of that. Your mind has to be in the right place. James is telling us here that difficult things we go through give us an opportunity to grow in Christ and grow in our understanding of him. And that can help us change our outlook on difficult things. So if you're here tonight and you're going through some hard things, try the joy we try to find is the opportunity in it. And sometimes that's really hard. But the opportunity you should always look for is how does this draw me closer to God? How does this let me be more like Jesus? How does this make Jesus bigger in my life? If you can find that, that's what you run towards through your difficulties, all right? The best example we see of this is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let me read that. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. So when we consider Jesus and we think of what he did, so on Sundays we're going through the book of John and we're in John chapter 14 now and we're getting close to where Jesus arrest, is arrested. And on the calendar we're getting sort of close to Easter. It's about two months out. And when, when we think of what Jesus went through, and if you don't know, we'll share that a little bit tonight, but for a lot of us who do know, Jesus knew what he was going to have to go through. He knew he was going to be rejected. He knew he was going to be spit on, punched, beaten, lied about. He knew he was going to be killed. And I don't think he approached any of that with excitement for having to go through that. But he saw the opportunity of what that thing was doing. And that was providing a way of salvation for all of us. And because he saw the opportunity through that, because of the joy that awaited him, he endured the cross. We endure our hard times because of the joy of the opportunity that those hard times bring. Jesus knew he had the opportunity to save the world, and so he went to the cross for us, all right? He made it through this incredibly difficult time, and so can you. I don't know what you're going through tonight, but you can make it through that. All right, let's go back to our verses in James, verse 5 through 8. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is where James is talking. I said he's blunt. He says, if you have doubts, you're, you're like a crazy person. If you have doubts and you ask God for things, but you don't doubt that God's going to do it, then you are unstable. You're like the waves of the sea getting, getting thrown here and there. You're never going to be stable in life if you are plagued by doubts. And that's hard, right? 
That's, James actually knew Jesus. He saw Jesus. We haven't even seen him. We only get to read about him. So sometimes it's even harder, I think, for us to just read about him compared to the people who got to experience him. And some of us have doubts. Some of us say, well, how do I know that book's true? How do I know Jesus was who he said he is? How do I know that God is real and God is listening? How do I even know that God loves me? And that's tough. And sometimes those doubts creep in. So when we pray, it feels like I'm just talking to walls. I'm not talking to a person. But when we pray with those doubts, what the Bible tells us, what James says, it's like you're just lost at sea, man, when you do that. You have to pray in faith. You say, well, I can't pray for big things in faith. Then pray for whatever you can in faith. Start small. What can you pray for in faith? Find that and seek it out, all right? Sometimes we think the worst is going to happen. Or sometimes we pray for something and we just say, in Jesus' name, amen, that's not going to happen. How many of us have prayed for something that we really, really want? We pray, we say, Lord, give me this, uh, help me do this, help someone get that. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. And then as soon as we finish the prayer, we're like, yeah, that ain't going to happen. That's what James is talking about. That's how some of us pray. We pray, but we don't actually believe it. We're wasting our time when we do that, all right? It's not about results with that. We'll talk about that in just a second. Now, if you want to make through tough times, your faith has to be in the right place. We talk about faith and doubt. I could give the whole lesson on faith and doubt. Listen, when I was your guy's age, doubt, it defined me. You know, I had so many questions. I had so many questions. There was a lot of things I wanted to believe, but there were so many things I was unsure of that I couldn't let anything, I couldn't take a step forward in anything because I was unsure of where the next step would take me. And what I found is that doubt paralyzed me. And that's where some of you are today. It's okay to have doubts. But when doubts take over, man, you ain't going nowhere. You're going to get stuck there. Faith has to be in the right place in your life. And picture it this way. Faith has to be in the driver's seat. It's okay if doubt's in the car, but doubt shouldn't be driving. All right? Doubt is not a good driver. If doubt wants to be along for the ride, it can sit in the back and put in its earbuds and be quiet. All right, and every once in a while it might pop in. You might think, oh, yeah, he's got a good point, but he ain't driving. Faith should drive your life. Instead of putting your faith in a specific outcome, though, you need to put it in the one you're praying to. See, sometimes why we lose faith in God is because we pray so hard for something to happen, and we believe that what we prayed for is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen and our faith is shaken. Oh, man, I prayed that this person would get better. And I believed that they were going to get better. And I knew they were going to get better. But they didn't get better, so I don't know what I believe. See, when you do that, your faith is in the outcome and not in the person you're actually asking to do anything. Drew talked about success and failures. And sometimes, even when you ask God for success, you're still going to fail in life. And when that happens, if your faith is in the right place, it's not going to knock you off course. Because faith being in the right place helps us to understand that, okay, I asked God for this. This is what I wanted, but it didn't go the way I wanted. But I still trust that God knows what he's doing. That's the difference. So some of you are here, and you've got a sick family member. Or you get, you're really struggling with something. You've been praying and praying and praying, and you're not getting what you want. And as a result, it's, it's affecting your faith and your relationship with Christ. I would tell you that your faith is in the wrong spot. Your faith is in the outcome. Put your faith in the one you're talking to and trust that whatever outcome you get, it is good for you because God is good. That's hard to do but it's necessary to do. 
you know, and, and here's the thing. When we start living outcome-based faith, we start chasing the outcome we want, even if it's not what God wants for us. I've seen it happen before. Maybe it's a guy or a girl who's just so desperate to be in a relationship. They pray, God, give me a boyfriend. God, give me a boyfriend. God, give me a specific guy. And then that guy just says no. It's okay, maybe not him. God, give me this guy. God, give me a boyfriend. Give me a boyfriend. Give me a boyfriend. And over and over, God says no, because whatever, I don't know, maybe she's crazy, whatever. But he says no, but they start chasing after any guy that will say yes. And if God says no, don't go after someone who will say yes. All right? That is outcome-based faith. Because then you're putting your faith in that boy instead of God. Girls, let me tell you something. We got a whole room full of girls here. Guys, plug your ears just for a second. Teenage boys are mutants. All right? They are, listen, you might be like, not mine. He's so special. He's so sweet. Nope. Mm -mm. He's a gremlin, okay? He's, he's a maniac. Here's the thing. I'm not saying don't date. Some of you have boyfriends, and I know some of your boyfriends. Some of them are nice guys. I'm not going to lie. Some of them are sweet guys, but can I tell you something? If you are putting your faith in that boy to treat you right, there's going to be a day or a time or a phone call where he doesn't, and he's going to break your heart, and it's going to suck. God will always treat you right. So if a guy won't, leave him. Drop him at the curb and say, I got a God who's going to treat me right. Unless you keep up with him, hit the bricks, all right? Guys, same thing. A lot of times we hear, oh, guys are dogs. Listen, guys, don't settle as well. Don't settle for a girl that does not treat you right. This almost has nothing to do with the lesson. I'm just teaching a different lesson right now. But it's, it's important because this is what outcome-based faith means. Some of us are lonely and we want a relationship. I, you can clap. That's cool. You want a relationship so bad that you don't care what God says, so you settle for some loser that isn't right for you. God knows who's right for you. And maybe it's going to take a minute. And maybe it's going to take a moment. But here's the thing. When you settle for losers, you know what happens? You have to start swimming through the crap. You put yourself in those situations that you didn't want to be in. So trust him and put your faith in him and not in what you want. Trust that what he wants for you is what's best for you. Look at what Psalms chapter 62 says. It says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I love it. It says, for God alone is my soul, my soul waits in silence. Not for God to move, I wait. Not for God to give me what I want, I wait. I'm just waiting for God. Whatever that looks like, I would urge you to, to wait for God in your life. Stability comes when your faith is in the right place, when it isn't in outcomes or things or people, but in God. When you trust that whatever he does is right and whatever answer he gives is best, that is the best faith you can have. Then no matter what happens in your life, you can be stable and you can be unshaken because your faith is in the right place. All right, we're going to read through a whole bunch of verses now. We're going to finish the 18, okay? Let me take a breath. Okay. Verse 9 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We're in verse 13 now. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, outcome-based faith, right? Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, will he, will he, of his, let me, bleh. of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I just read a whole lot of verses, right? I want to focus on the last one, but I want to put up a different version of that last one. Let's go to our next slide. This is the NLT translation. Verse 18, it says, He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. We've probably all heard, I shouldn't assume, but we've, most of us have heard, if not all of us, that Jesus loves us. I hope you've heard that. If not, I want you to know Jesus loves you. But, but when we have tough times and when life is hard and when things happen to us, that's usually the first thing we forget is that Jesus loves you. When you get bad news, when you, when you lose a friend, when things are spiraling out of control, one of the first things we forget is the most important thing, that Jesus loves you. In fact, it's a pretty common reaction to blame God for our problems and to blame God for what's going on. And James addresses this by saying, hey, 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 don't be saying God's tempting me. God doesn't tempt us. Don't be saying, God, this is all your fault. But James is clear to tell us that everything that's good, everything that's perfect, Everything that you have in your life that you enjoy that comes from our Father in heaven, he is never going to change. And then he says, and I love that verse that we just read, out of all of creation, we are his prized possession. The most favorite thing that God ever made was, was us. Jesus loves you. When, he, when I say Jesus loves you, sometimes that doesn't, we don't understand the weight of that. Like he doesn't just like love you. He, he loves you more than anything else he's ever created. Jesus loves you so much that that's why he went through what he did. That's why he died, because he loved you. <laughs> Listen, I was talking to Drew beforehand. Drew, here's another really cool God moment. The last verse I want to share with you guys tonight. Uh, can we skip the next slide and go to the verse? Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, which Drew already shared with us. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Let me just show you how cool God is, all right? I asked Drew to share uh, his heart tonight, and I didn't check with him what he was going to say or anything. And then I had my lesson planned, and he said a lot of the same things I did. He read the same verse that I did. I don't believe in coincidence. Here's a coincidence. We wear the same pair of shoes, right? But when God starts speaking repeatedly, that's not a coincidence, and you need to listen. Why did I share that verse? Here's why. Because your place has to be in the right place. Here's what I mean by that. You need to understand your place in this world. And your place is of great, incredible value. You are so valuable to God 
You are so important to God. You matter so much to God. So I shared that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. And that's a great verse. And a lot of us know it, man. That is a bumper sticker verse if I ever heard one. You print that out. You share that one. You put it on your fridge, whatever. It's an inspiring, cool verse. But what we don't always understand is the context of that verse. In Jeremiah 29, when, when God is saying, I, I have plans for you, and they are good plans, and they are not a disaster, is to give you future and hope. Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel. And here's what was going on in Israel at the time God says this, all right? They were, they were going to be conquered by the nation of Babylon. They were going to be captive. They were going to be slaves for 70 years. They are going to be ripped out of their land. They are going to be taken from their home. They weren't going to go back to their homes or get their stuff. They are going to lose everything they ever owned for 70-plus years, for some people, hearing that meant that they would never, never see relatives again, never see loved ones again, never see, never see friends again. Talk about a difficult time. And yet, in the midst of a time like that, God says, I've got plans for you, and they are good plans because you are so, so important. I want to give you a future and a hope in the middle of the hard times. Sometimes we can forget our place in God's heart. Your place in God's heart is at the forefront of it all. We are a prized possession to him. We are one of his children. I have three children. I love them so much. I have two boys, Isaac and Jacob, and I've got a little girl named Sophie, who some of you know. If not, she's right there, and she will make it known where she's at, all right? I love my kids. But I love to share my story of Sophie even more because it shows just how important God is, you are to God. I don't know if you can tell, but Sophie was adopted. That's nothing we keep secret. She's Chinese. I'm like a hillbilly, all right? Like, <laughs> you, you can tell. <laughs> That's nothing we can keep secret from her. But do you know what adoption looks like from a parent's perspective? You have a love for someone that you've never met yet. You have a desire to bring someone into your family and call them yours, and you go through whatever it takes to get them. We filled out paperwork. We had to be interviewed. I had to deal with some humility because we got to see the analysis of our interview, and it says, Jordan is a heavy set bald man. I'm like, cool, why'd you put that? Like, what's that? What's that matter, right? You know, and you have to go through these things. We have to be cleared. We have to do background checks. We have to pay money, and it was a lot of money. We had to raise funds and all this stuff, and here's the thing. We had to go to Chicago and have like stacks of paper like this thick, like authenticated and documented, and all this stuff just to bring a child into our life, and then... When we got the call that we had a child to, to, to see a picture of, and they say, say yes or no. Who's going to say no, first of all? Like, right? First kid we saw, we're like, yep, that's her. That's, that's our daughter. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Sophie didn't jump on a plane and come home to America and find us. No, that's not how adoption works. We had to leave our home. We had to travel to another land to go get our child and bring her into our family. And that's exactly what God did for you. He left his home in heaven. He did all the work. He paid every price because he desperately wants you to be his child and be a part of his family. So when you are going through hard things, when you are going through things to say, God doesn't care. Where is God? God is absent. You could not be more wrong. He loves you more than anyone or ever, anything ever will in this life. He is worth seeking out because he sought you out and he paid the ultimate price for you. You are his most prized possession. He chose you. 
Now, I have some sons that are mine by birth, and you might say, well, is it different? Absolutely not. That is my daughter 100%. She is mine, and I am hers. And that's what God wants for you. That's not in my notes. I uh, just decided that's what I'm going to share tonight. But I want you to understand that's the love God has for you. He desperately wants you. So if you're here tonight and you're struggling, I understand struggle is hard. I understand struggle is painful. And I understand sometimes struggle means it's hard to find God. Trust me. He's there. And he loves you. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. Um, but you love us more than we ever could. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you care for us. I thank you that you left your home to come to our world. And I thank you that you paid the price for us. God, I pray for every student tonight who is here and is struggling, who is hurting, who is suffering, who brought in baggage that we don't know about, who brought in pain that we don't know about, who brought in anxiety, who brought in depression, who brought in trauma. I pray for those who need healing. God, I pray that they do not lose sight of you in the midst of their pain and in the midst of their problems. I pray that they can find you in the middle of it all. I pray that doubt shuts up in their mind and faith takes over in the driver's seat. More than anything, Jesus, I pray that there's someone here tonight who has not been adopted into your family and doesn't know what it means to be a child of God, that tonight is the night that they make the decision to follow you. That tonight is the night when they say, I want to put my trust in him. I don't have a lot of trust to give, but I will give whatever I have to Jesus. And I will chase after him with everything that I have and everything that I am. We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.